Okay, good morning everyone. A very warm welcome um, from uh, this panel to, to our audience. I'm Panos Katsambas. I'm a partner with Reed Smith, uh, heading the financial industry group um, and working with uh, institutional investors and a number of investment structures and opportunities in the shipping sector as well. Yeah, in the past years, we've run this panel um, at Capital Link, uh, both here and uh, in other locations, and always had a focus around you know, private equity and the distressed nature of the market and opportunities for, for funds. Um, and this year, um, I would see the title to, to be slightly different and touching on a broader theme around investment opportunities and capital allocation strategies. Um, as a result, I'd say, of a lot of the distress having been cleared out, uh, NPLs having traded, and having from a um, financial and in investment um, segue a, a more robust and, and, and less volatile, perhaps, shipping market. Um, on the other hand, the geopolitical situation uh, is nothing but volatile and uncertain, and, and that coupled with uh, regulatory and environmental um, changes um, uh, provides a, a, an always interesting environment um, for the market participants and the opportunities they, they, they are pursuing. So with this background and, and with our panel covering um, pretty much a broad, um, a, a broad segment of, of the market from advisory to uh, ownership to uh, investment management and, and running institutional money and invested across different parts of the, of the, of the shipping market, uh, we'll be examining uh, where the opportunities lie for professional investors um, and, and uh, market outlook, both for debt and equity um, opportunities. Uh, very brief introduction to the panel, which I assume you, you all know them quite well. We have Paolo Almeida, CIO of Tufton, um, Ole Hertacker, CEO of SFL Corporation, Jim Sirenza, Managing Director with uh, DNB Markets, and Christoph Topfer, CEO of Borealis Maritime. And I'll, I'll start this by, by going first to the fellow service provider, advisor, uh, call it a bit of, of, of advisor bias, but Jim, um, let me start with you. Can you provide us with your view on the current market situation and, and, and where you see opportunities for your clients and, and any differentiation between the U.S. side and the U.S. investors? Good afternoon or good morning. I'll start with the U.S. picture at the moment. We finished the month of August with the average retail investor, more than two-thirds invested in stocks and less than a third invested in bonds and cash. Both of those are fairly extreme. Uh, we, we, had a, we had institutional investors with record high cash levels in the fourth quarter of last year, and by the end of the summer, we're back to average cash levels at best. And we've had a year and a half of really anemic sort of ECM and DCM activities in terms of total activity. So as Christo said earlier, I think this fourth quarter, starting with September, is going to be an interesting test for the markets. Uh, institutions are now in a position where they're probably going to have to sell something to buy something, so you better have something more attractive than what's currently out there. So the picture, I think, has changed quite a bit. To complicate the, uh, the cash flow picture as well, we've had 82 straight weeks where active equity managers have lost funds, which were 
And during that period of time, the, the ETFs have just dominated, uh, which is great. It just keeps pumping up the biggest stocks. But, but the active picture has, been a, is, has become a little bit more troubling coming out of the summer than what we saw before. The, the shipping segment of the market fit into that picture, um, and, and you know, as we're entering the, the, the fourth quarter. Sure. So, the technology exposure went from an underweight at the start of the year to being an overweight, thanks to AI and amazing second quarter numbers. Uh, technology was uh, the outperformance in the U.S. indices for for May, June, and July. Uh, everything else, if you looked at the S&P equal weight, the, the year's been flat. As far as, as far as shipping is concerned, you know, even though the U.S. ownership of shipping has improved over the last two years, uh, I don't view it as an overweight yet. And for two years now, we've talked about everything that touches energy is doable, and I don't see what's going to change that with, with rent at $90 a barrel. Um, so uh, for everything that touches energy, I think the picture on a relative basis is, is very good. Okay, well, well, we'll be coming back to some of these themes later on, but uh, let me switch to the owner side and go to Oleb. Um, and and you, you, you just heard the, the outlook from the advisory side on the, on the capital markets, and obviously you run a diversified uh, listed shipping company um, with uh, a long history uh, in, in terms of being listed. What do you see in terms of the market outlook vis-a-vis -vis your investors and, and more generally a bit of a comment around the, the strength of having a, a listed vehicle um, in, in, in this sector? Yeah, so, so SFL has now been listed for nearly 20 years, um, so it's been going for, for a while. Been returning, you know, close to 13% uh, over the years, which you can say doesn't sound too much, but most people who invest in shipping lose everything. So, so getting something <laughs> is actually, you know, a big plus uh, in this industry. Um, so, so that's that's been good, paying dividend every single quarter, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. We have a diversified fleet. We've gone through, I would say, a, a total transformation of the business we do. I mean, when we started, it was more finance-like. Uh, where we had, you know, either, you know, bare boats or structured bare boats, uh, you can call it. Um, and, and what we have realized over the years is that you have to be very careful with how you invest um, and, and, and who you deal with and who your counterparties are. And we, we, we really switched because we wanted to deal with end users. And to do end users, you have to switch from being, call it a bare boat finance-like setup, to be more fully, effectively fully integrated, delivering, in, you know, call it the logistic services to, to end users on the container side, car carrier side, tanker side, etc. So, so, so that's changed. But you know, if you if we look at just uh, being public, I think our our or in my dilemma in SFL, I mean, we have you know 1.4 billion dollar market cap. We have a turnover of 50 to 60 million dollars per week. Uh, you know, share turnover. But it's sort of, in the US market, it's sort of irrelevant. It's, it's too small. I mean, you really need to be four, five plus billion dollars to be relevant. And that's a problem for most of the shipping companies. They're just way too small. Um, and also, incidentally, I mean, most of, most of the, or at least a lot of the shipping companies are priced under NAV, under, under liquidation costs. I mean, how can that be? I mean, you should be ashamed if you run a company 
we're not able to, 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 to persuade your investors to at least uh, you know, value it at what it's worth if we sold it. I mean, then you should sell it. So that's uh, that sort of, so, so some of the listed entities are sort of holding on to their platform, you know, maybe to reward themselves. Maybe, you know, uh, management compensation is too rich in some of these companies. Not in SFL. We have the lowest, you know, you're getting there, Christoph. You know, we have the lowest, uh, you know, call it G&A or, or overhead, uh, I would think, I think in the industry per, per vessel day uh, and also per, per capital allocated. So some of our fellows here, you know, they, uh, like, like Christoph here, for instance, I mean, he gets his money from, uh, from KKR. So, so if you're an investor, I mean, one, you invest in KKR if you're allowed in. You pay a fee, uh, an incentive fee, and then KKR invests with Christoph, and then he charges a fee on top of that. So in SFL, you, you go straight in. There are no extra fees. It's sort of, it's super, you know, I don't understand why people, people go, go, go sort of the wrong way around it. Well, what do you think, Polo? I think um, he has both, right? We, he has yeah, the fund and yeah, the listed, so you can pick and choose. We have both. There's a there's a, a, a pretty good British term, horses for courses. The American version, different strokes for different folks. Um, people have different ways to access the markets, and some investors um, don't feel comfortable enough choosing someone to deploy capital for them in shipping, they want someone in between that, you know, that's, I think it's just a matter, matter of life. Um, most of, most of um, the private money that we manage is directly for um, European pension funds, and we have two listed vehicles, um, Tufts and Oceanic Assets, which Tom from LSC uh, mentioned this morning, which, we've ta which I've talked about before in, in these panels, and then in March we listed a vehicle in um, Norway, a market you know maybe more familiar to to uh, to you, Ola, and and you know the Fredericks and the next Fredrickson um, universe, and we're pretty transparent on our public vehicles. I'm not going to go into details um, on that, but clearly our investors are pretty uh, pretty happy with that. And in fact, as we've discussed before, we both have Fidelity as one of our biggest investors in our uh, listed vehicles. But so. you're listed in, in, in London. I mean, what's, what sort of the attention, what kind of share turnover? Is there, is there liquidity? I mean, if you're a big investor, I mean, you want to make sure that you can get in and out without moving the share price. So if you want to sell your shares, you don't want the share price to crash because you, you, you sell, you know, in say, say you, need, you need to invest 20, 30 million dollars. And you can say you can maximum buy or sell 10% per day. To, to get in and out. I mean, in some, some I'm not I'm generally, most of the shipping companies have really thin liquidity and they're uninvestable for institutions. It depends, again, horses for courses, as they say uh, in here, we say in the UK. Um, I, I, I like the brewery horse. Sorry? That's my favorite. The horses for courses. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, in the UK, is, is Tom actually. Um, uh, briefly mentioned this morning in his presentation from the LSC, there is much more of a universe of alternative investments in funds that have some liquidity, not particularly high liquidity, um, where investors look to support a strategy that is more akin to a private equity type strategy, but through a listed format over a seven to 10 year period. Mm -hmm. And in fact, 
one of the interesting aspects of, of a lot of the funds, it's ones that we, it's the one that we in our London vehicle have, which is we think is very investor friendly, is um, on the seventh anniversary of the fund, and then every three years after that, and the, our seventh anniversary is next is uh, coming up next year. Investors get to vote whether or not we should liquidate the portfolio, mm. and so you know clearly we feel very confident in our investment strategy, that our investors will support us. Um, but it also provides, you know, a bit of mechanism that if something does go wrong, which, you know, can happen, and it's good for lots of funds to have this, that um, if the in investor says, you know, you say your portfolio is $1.25 per share NAV, but we haven't, we want to see that $1.25, you have two or three years to sell the assets. We think that's great discipline to have that. We don't think our investors will ever tell us to sell assets. We'll choose when to sell them and to return capital, but it's nice to have that discipline. It makes investors more likely to invest in the first place. Hmm. But they're locked in for seven years, effectively? Is that what No, 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 they can, tr they, you know, there's, they, can, they can sell. Yeah, but is there liquidity to do that? I mean, okay, maybe, maybe, yeah, yeah. But, but you know, Christoph, I guess, is uh, that you have more permanent capital. You have locked-in investors, don't you? I, I can give you more detailed uh, advice <laughs> on the structures of permanent <laughs> funds, but uh, it, perhaps we can move on to Christoph also to, to hear what he's been doing right for KKR to be supporting him and the Borealis team for so long and, and where you see the opportunities right. in the current market segment. But Thanks, Pano. It's always good to be on a, on a panel with Ole because he starts running the panel uh, and tries to see some controversy. And uh, yes, of course, we take some fees. You know, the fees uh, keep, our, keep our lights on and pays for the rent. But I asked, uh, I asked the audience, you know, who do you rather invest into? Someone who only makes money if you make money or someone who gets the bonus at the end of the year? You know, so, um, yeah, we have a very different business model than obviously than, than, than Ole. We, um, we deploy institutional capital, you know, KKR is one of our investors, um, but we also have others. And uh, we have been very opportunistic around, you know, which sector we pick and, and how, we, how we deploy the capital and also how we exit. Um, and uh, with the shift in the market um, and the years that we've had, we have been very, very disciplined around exiting also. We have sold over 60 vessels in the last two and a half years. We've reduced our fleet from 80 vessels to now 25. Um, and uh, so we've also bought a few vessels we, we've bought into the offshore market. So we have also delivered a very disciplined approach around really taking the profits when you can take some profits. Yes, of course, in hindsight, some vessels we sold too early because the market went further than we thought. We had a heavy investment in the container side and the container market obviously went further than anyone had predicted. But it's important that you also actually show that you are actually exiting uh, and taking the profit and you're showing the investor that you're, that you're disciplined, not like uh, you know, what happened in the German market where the manager always hang on because of his management fees because there was no alignment of interest. You know, so alignment of interest with the investor is really key for what we do. Um, we have in the last few years transitioned uh, as a business into the offshore market, but also now there's a further transition and you know, Philip Wunschmann mentioned this on the, on the previous panel that you know, opportunistic investments right now is tough in shipping. Everything is expensive, uh, even offshore is expensive these days, uh, and it's, it's very difficult to have an opportunistic approach right now. If you're purely opportunistic, you probably, uh, like Ed Battery suggested, you know, buy your Sunseeker and, and, and take some, uh, some long vacation because there may be, you know, it may be uh, taking some time before you see opportunistic, uh, interesting deals again. 
So we are also looking into investments these days that are much more conservative, uh, more with long-term cash flow secured, where you're actually able to you know, de-risk your purchase price sufficiently that you're actually ending up at a residual value that's, that's, that's uh, you're defendable um, and that, uh, that is yeah, uh, you know, taking, taking not too much risk in, in this market right now. Um, so we, we have to reinvent ourselves from time to time. We, uh, we go with the market. Uh, we don't uh, you know, count ourselves with assets under management as being the success. For us, the success is our track record. And, and let me ask you in terms of, and I think that was the, the, the um, theme I, I, I mentioned at the beginning of this, that those opportunistic investments are appearing to be scarce these days in, in the industry. But in terms of the you know, more structured investments, cash flow positive and so forth, in which segments of the markets do you see greater opportunities right now and, and you guys are looking at? It's uh, quite clear that the tanker market still see, you know, has some opportunities. Uh, we see some, uh, some opportunities in some older you know, can, uh, container vessels sometimes. The dry car market will be too expensive right now. The cash flow is not there. Uh, uh, we see opportunities uh, in, in, in the offshore market for sure. Um, that is a market where we continue to um, uh, deploy capital and see opportunities. It's obviously a market where not everyone can play in. Uh, we could touch on ESG later on as well, probably. Um, but it's a market that is, that is underinvested uh, from an institutional uh, capital perspective right now. Ole, I want to come back to you, and you mentioned earlier about the size and, 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 and where you need to be to be relevant, perhaps, in the, in the U.S. market from a liquidity standpoint for the institutional investors. What is holding the listed shipping companies from trying to use their, their share as, as, a, as a way of consolidating the industry and growing, growing bigger? Do you see opportunities uh, in the current market segment to that effect? Absolutely, there are opportunities if you have the right pricing and if you run your business efficient enough. So, as I said, you know, many, most of the shipping companies are inefficiently run. They're priced, so let, call it under liquidation value. And that is, of course, very difficult to use that as a currency in doing transactions because then you're effectively diluting yourself if you're printing shares to do a deal. So, if you have the other side around, uh, you know, then, then it's a bit different equation. And, uh, you know, I happen to be on the board of Frontline, and Frontline is a good example of a company. With, with size, almost $4 billion market cap now, with around $200 million turnover. It's like four times SFL in daily turnover on average. And they have a pricing that, I mean, arguably, you know, you can talk to a broker, you know, NAV is sort of a, you know, it's a topic in itself. But, but at least it's, it's decently priced, which means that you have a proper currency. So I think that's the issue. I mean, for some of the listed companies, they don't do anything with it. Uh, and they can hardly attract the investor attention. I mean, the smartest guy is really this guy because he collects the um, M&A fees and the listing fees and he runs, takes the money and runs, no, don't he, you? He, he's the next to be asked on this subject, but Jim I can, can still run, I can yeah, still yeah, run. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Jim, your, your views on potential you know, M&A activity in the sector and what's, uh, what's holding sure, you Sure, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna jump on the back of uh, the comment about Frontline. Frontline is listed in Norway. It's listed in the U.S. I'm a big fan of dual listings. Um, I was up here uh, 12 months ago with the LPG stocks. You should have bought those. They doubled. Um, anyway, uh, even BW LPG just announcing last week that they have an intention to dual list in the U.S. The stock went up about 10%. So uh, there is a listing arbitrage. For the, last, for the last 12 months, if you're listed in the U.S., uh, you've got, you've got a, a, a deeper pocket of shareholders combined with the fact that what I mentioned earlier, there's just an 
just a ridiculous amount of ETF money over there. And if, so if you can get yourself in certain indices, you know, the difference between a U.S. listed company with, uh, with seven or eight million dollars of daily volume and a and billion dollars of, uh, of market cap, you're, you're in a situation where you could probably have more than 20% of your shareholder bases as, as passive investors and investors are cumulative. So I, there is a listing arbitrage. So getting back to getting back to M and A, you know, M and A has really dried up in the last four and a half, five quarters. Uh, we've had across the industry the, the the four worst quarters in a decade in terms of M and A activity. Cash M and A has absolutely collapsed over this over this period of time. You know, that being said, there is some M and A activity in shipping. I think you described the dynamics well enough. I don't need to go through them again. We've certainly seen situations like LNG over the last two years to a large extent being taken private, so we'll, we'll talk about that later. Um, but yeah, does m and is, is M&A going to continue to be a feature in shipping above and beyond the market overall? I think so. Paolo, uh, coming back to you and, the, and Tufton's listed vehicles, um, what is the, uh, you touched a bit earlier on the, the, the kind of exit approach and the, the renewal of the investment term, but what other differences would you see from a, from a normal listed shipping company and then from the private funds you run and what's the driver for launching these products? Well, uh, the, so if, if, we, if we look at our uh, London listed fund, the genesis of that is um, an investment community here primarily in the UK that wanted to diversify away from high exposure to real estate, a little bit of aircraft leasing, um, and infrastructure. So those were asset classes that you know historically have been highly successful, but where yields were very low, asset values were very high. And we've seen this on the private side as well. Again, uh, pension, primarily pension fund money, both smaller pension funds via our uh, UK listed vehicle and private pension funds through uh, separate accounts. So, you know, shipping had seen um, nearly 10 years of, of pretty poor um, performance after the global financial crisis because the overhang of capacity um, and there was a recovery coming um, and cash yields in general were much more attractive than in those other markets where you were getting four, four and a half, five percent in shipping. If you um, have a pretty risk averse strategy like we do, Christoph does um, too, and so does uh, SFL, Ola, um, you're probably around the 11 to 12 percent over the cycle. If you have a diversified portfolio, two to three year contract, you know, we, we presented a lot of historical data on this, you're probably producing 12 percent unlevered cash on cash. That's pretty attractive. In, um, in a market then where you were getting 3.5% on real estate, 4.5% on, um, 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 on, uh, on infrastructure. And then clearly the markets have corrected, however. Um, we think dry bulk is probably more attractive in the next 6 to 12 months than it has been in the past um, 6 to 12. Um, totally agree with with uh, Christoph that the yields are not attractive, but you know a lot of our best 
transactions at Tufton have been in investing in segments with asset values at 30% discount to new build parity that were yielding low, but where we saw either good demand drivers or even better, good supply drivers. Um, so we think that will come back, um, but agree as well that tankers are expensive by a number of measures, yields that you can, you can lock in um, versus new build parity versus, uh, versus history. Um, so we've been looking a little bit more at niche markets. We listed a chemical tanker portfolio in Oslo um, in March. We're looking more and more at dual fuel vessels where we would have five, seven, ten-year charters. So again, a risk-averse um, uh, strategy and where there is capital looking to support shipping's decarbonization. And we're looking more and more at offshore wind as well. Got it. And, and we'll come back to, to that, some of these new um, types of vessels. But I want to switch gears and, and ask Jim um, to comment on the current status of the, 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 the debt markets in, in shipping and, and the financial institutions providing debt to ship owners. And we've seen a lot of change, shrinking of the market. What is the status um, of um, uh, banking um, right now from a, from a lending perspective as opposed to advisory? In the U.S., I've got a fixed income business and an equity business in 2023. Thank God I've got a fixed income business. Um, offshore has been enormous this year. It continues to be enormous. You know, everything that touches rigs, including offshore vessels, you know, most of these companies have come out of uh, bankruptcy and restructuring with little or no debt, and, and so they've had the opportunity to make acquisitions and uh, and, and lever up a little bit to uh, levels nowhere near what the levels were previously. Uh, we did a Tidewater bond back in June. We're doing a Stolt-Nielsen bond today. We did a Valaris bond uh, just about a week or two ago. Um, we were absolutely uh, busy as can be with the, with the offshore-related segments. Um, beyond that, from an equity point of view, we, we had the Himalaya IPO earlier this year. We had a uh, board drilling convertible bond. So shipping, shipping hasn't been absent from our activities. But once again, this year has been driven by our, our debt activities. And I'm sure everyone can kick themselves that we should have been, you know, they should have been doing this 12 months ago instead of this year. But, you know, you know central bank rates are higher, treasury rates are higher. But we haven't gotten into a situation yet where we've seen a significant widening of, uh, of high yield relative to uh, those treasury yields. And so as, as crazy as these, these current rates may sound, uh, I still think there's a risk that we're going to go wider with the high yield pricing over the next six to 12 months. So launched a specialty lender in, 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 in the industry. Um, obviously different, perhaps, uh, approach from the more traditional fixed income strategy. But where do you see the opportunities uh, for, for Australis um, in that space? And, and where do you see the, the banking sector that you perhaps compete with? We've seen also other specialty lenders um, being active in, in the market. How do you see the lay of the land on, on, on that front? 
Yes, we as uh, Borealis, we launched um, uh, a debt financing business, Australis Maritime, about five and a half years ago. And uh, this was a complement uh, to what we were doing with institutional capital seeking opportunities in shipping. And uh, there was certainly appetite from the institutional capital uh, base that we were dealing with to also deploy capital in this, in this uh, form. Um, as an alternative lender, you generally, um, obviously less or unregulated, um, you have the ability to structure your loans uh, slightly more, um, you know, uh, aggressive or slightly more advantageous to the way the market is working. And what I mean with that is that, uh, for example, um, you know, we do longer durations, uh, we do higher leverage, uh, we also have obviously a very strong view on the market. Um, we were able to structure loans back in 2021 uh, on the tanker side where we did not have fixed amortization to start with, but a cash sweep. So we were trying to cater for the lower uh, earnings environment, but we had a positive underlying view of the tanker market. Uh, we also went very early into the offshore market on the lending side, again, also driven from our overall view on the offshore side. Uh, on the equity side of the business, we also then um, were uh, probably the first one of the alternative lenders to also lend in offshore. Um, uh, and, and have done uh, uh, quite a number of, uh, of, of deals actually in the, in the offshore market. So it's, uh, you know, we are complements to, or the alternative lenders are complements to um, the, the lending space. Uh, so we are working quite often with banks as well. I mean, we, we're taking uh, back leverage from, from, from some banks, but also we are, you know, generally, uh, you know, quite often working, working closely with banks. Sometimes we compete. Not many times, but occasionally we have lost a deal to a bank that, uh, that was willing to drop the margin to some very, very low levels. Um, but in general, all our capital with the flexibility that we can provide and then also with the interest rate environment that we have today is actually quite attractive capital because, you know, we, we are a fixed uh, return-oriented uh, uh, lender. So we did not have to raise our financing costs uh, along the SOFA curve, uh, but where, you know, today our capital is actually just, I would say, marginally more expensive than what a traditional lender would, would charge. Um, but we have the ability to be, be non-recourse lending, you know, flexible in the structure. And yes, of course, some markets are a bit more difficult right now to lend into. The dry cargo market is difficult to lend into because as the prices are high, you know, revenues are low. But uh, again, you know, we have an overweight on the OSV market and maybe tankers right now. We've done some fantastic deals on the container side, on the lending side in 21, 20, uh, and, and 20 and 21. Um, that turned out obviously very, you know, better for the equity than for us as a debt provider, but, uh, but also for us it was a really successful investment. So we have to transition from sector to sector and, and be opportunistic, be fast on our feet uh, uh, when we see opportunities, also in terms of execution. Uh, that's obviously a big advantage that alternative lenders have as well. So it's, it's an interesting space. It will be there, you know, if, if the market is cash of, full of cash right now, it is what it is, you know, uh, the deal flow is still there, and we're in for the long game. Um, Ole, Paolo, a brief comment from you on the, on the debt side and how you see the markets right now in terms of getting financing for, for your opportunities. Yeah, I mean, back to the listing sort of question or, or topic, I think uh, being listed means that we probably have better access to alternative capital, like, you know, one thing is bond loan, you can also do that as a private entity, I think you get a little bit more attention, wider distribution if you're public, you can do convertible loans if you have a reasonably priced, uh, you know, capital. Uh, and you can do equity, right? So, so there are different sort of pockets of capital you can tap. 
are, you know, what we, you know, we, we try to think like, like a fox. You, know, you always need a, an, an, the second way out. Um, so, so we always look at various capital sources when we fund our business. We have, you know, just as an example, when I joined SFL, it's now, you know, too many years ago probably, um, we were predominantly funded by Scandi banks and, and, and European banks, but mainly Scandi banks. Now, if you combine all the Scandi banks in our portfolio, they would be our 14th largest uh, bank. We have many good friends uh, with, from other institutions who we are doing a lot more business with uh, here. And we've done a lot in Asia. You know, I think last year we funded you know, around, around a billion dollars in, in, in Japan alone. So, so that's, been a, that's been definitely a sort of a, a, uh, you know, a change. Um, you know, why is that? Uh, uh, you know, maybe, uh, you know, maybe I'm, I'm throwing sort of you know, a little bomb in. Uh, you know, maybe that Poseidon principle thing has, has distracted the banks uh, to a certain degree. Um, and uh, now as uh, the, the wider, call it, uh, you know, industry, you know, both IMO, they have the European Union and others who are sort of effectively catching up and maybe going ahead, maybe, maybe banks sort of realize that, well, you shouldn't scrap, I mean, you, you really need to finance ships through their life cycle. You shouldn't, you know, own it for a few years and then scrap it. That's very bad for the environment, particularly because you have to sell it to someone who helped to melt it down. You cannot really reuse it. You cannot put it up on a beach in India or, or Bangladesh where they actually use everything. You know, not good for working conditions, obviously, not good for pollutions around it, but it's a different type of recycling. So, so, um, so, but now, but now that is uh, changing a bit, and I think it's very, very positive with the new focus on, on well-to-wake. Because when you look at that, we spend a lot of time on this, for obvious reasons, right, with a portfolio, and, and we, we, we want to be, and we want to be service providers for, for logistics, larger logistics operators. And, and when we look at it, and you study it, you, you see that shipping is probably the last industry that should be green. You should do everything else before you use that energy to, on, on shipping. You, yes, you will modify ships, you will optimize ships, put new paint, new bow. You can do a lot with ships to make them marginally better, but you really have to do a lot elsewhere you know, for, for, the, for the greater community. So, so, so that is uh, something that we, you know, we, we both spend time on. We look at, when we look at investments, of course, when you have more uncertainty on how banks act, uh, when banks try to pull the rug under you, you know, as they, you know, we felt that they've been doing from time to time in, in, in certain segments, you have to be a little careful. Maybe um, you, um, you, you won't, uh, you know, you have to, you know, do your deals a little different uh, if you don't have properly, you know, what can we say, predictable, um, you know, partners also on the financing side. What did it cost to hedge the yen? We don't. We do straight dollars. Paolo, from your perspective, access to financing and, and the state of the market in that respect? Yeah, we're, we're, we, um, we're not a big user of, uh, of leverage, but definitely um, the, the, our listed vehicles are much more straightforward to um, get bank financing for, and in some cases we've been looking increasingly at private placements for um, ships that have longer than five-year charters where we want to have a tenor of debt equal to the tenor uh, uh, of charter. But definitely the listing um, is very helpful because it's a corporate entity that even if it doesn't give a guarantee, um, it has an audited track record, et cetera. So the listing, listing helps a lot. As it happens, our private investors um, 
have not wanted to use any leverage because they own all sorts of assets with no leverage, including real estate, which is, you know, let's just say historically is seen as an extremely safe asset. Maybe people feel a little bit differently over the past couple of years, but if um, you're a pension fund that has $10 billion of real estate with no leverage on it, they're not about to put leverage on ships that have two, three, five-year charters. So it's worked, it's worked very well for us, but definitely a listing, a listing helps a lot. It's a lot better than trying to put leverage into a, into a fully private structure. Um, before we close, and I see here the, the, the timer running down, but I wanted to um, ask each of you for some thoughts around the broader geopolitical situation and the impact of sanctions in, in, in your opportunities and the investments you run, how, if at all, has impacted um, uh, your day-to-day. Ole, maybe we'll start with you. Oh, yeah, absolutely. It affects us a lot. And, uh, you know, we have, you know, a, a sanction team in, 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 you know, in our organization who is spending a lot of time on this. Um, of course, it's become, I mean, we've always had sanctions, call it, in, in our industry. And, and that's, that's one of the big benefits, I would say, in addition to counterparty risk that, you know, counterparties go, go bankrupt. I mean, if, they are, if, you, if, you, if you charter vessels to intermediaries and you don't charter to end users. Charting to end users who actually you know, use and want cargo transported, they are as exposed to sanctions as we are. So we are, you can say, in, in, from that perspective, cooperating. Um, but you know, it's, it's difficult. For instance, uh, you look at, look at Russian oil. I mean, if, if it had been sanctions altogether, it would have been very simple. But the problem is that you know, the world needs the Russian oil. So therefore, you have these price cap and these various measures. So, so we've had on vessels that we have charted out to you know, large you know, oil, oil companies. You know, we, you know if, if everything checks out on the sanction check, you, we can't, we're not allowed to refuse lifting the oil, even if we didn't want to do it. So, so um, you know, it's, uh, but, but, uh, but again, we, we, we focus on it. Uh, we know all our banks do that, or all our insurers do it. But more importantly, as long as our customers are aligned with us, uh, you know, I think, uh, but we need to do our own job, of course, on that. But it's, uh, it's, it's, it's quite intensive. We spend a lot of time on that. regime impacting um, a kind of institutional manager of, of, of money in, in the space? It, it's the same for probably for everyone, um, where the you know, sanction compliance is, is, a, is a big topic, and also investing US-based you know, private equity money obviously uh, very much is, is the forefront of what we do as well. Um, it takes a lot of time in our team. You know, the, the requests from, from clients where we provide lending to, um, you know, with, with the Russian compliance uh, trading, etc. So it's, it's a very time intensive uh, work, but uh, it needs to be done. Um, uh, and, uh, you know, it, it's, it's quite successful. And, and, uh, and generally, we, we have a, you know, um, you know if, if everything checks out, as Ola just said, you know, then, then you know, you, you cannot stop uh, the, the, the clients going there. Um, we don't go to Russia or to any Russian trade with our own fleet. Uh, we just have ruled that out, uh, not even for compliant, uh, for compliant car cargos. In general, obviously, the geopolitical landscape is, is something that affects us in shipping all the time. Um, you know, we've had major events with COVID and with the war, uh, both of which had major uh, effects on, on certain parts of the, of the, of the shipping market. 
and this is how it will continue. Uh, and uh, you know, I think there's generally is a quite a lot of optimism right now around every sector. You know, uh, will, will do well. Maybe containers have a bit of an order book to work through, but also there, you know, through the decarbonization and and you know slower speeds. You know, some people are optimistic that actually in the order book can be quite easily absorbed. But our view is also on the on the on Jenny as, as a firm. You know, something somewhere will break, and there will be opportunities again for us to to deploy also opportunistic capital. And in the meantime, one has to be disciplined, uh, rigorous on uh, you know, on your lending side around sanction compliance, and make sure you don't trip up anywhere. Um, uh, you know, getting caught in a in a in a wrong sector or with with, with a messy situation. Jim, let me close it with you. Uh, any last remarks on the geopolitical situation, very briefly? Sure. I mean, listen, we're, we're a bank and we're an investment bank in the U.S. We're a bank and we're an investment bank here in London. The amount of regulatory scrutiny that we get is, is enormous, you know, much more than an investment bank, for instance, would, would receive. You know, Christos talked about the headcount of compliance in London. Thank God they win. Um, we don't have 30 in the U.S., but um, the pressure that we get to know our clients, you know, with KYC, uh, and the pressure that we get to underwrite clients that fit what we preach, um, there is enormous regulatory scrutiny. The amount of time that regulators spend with us when they do their examinations has tripled in the last decade. So. Um, we're well staffed on that front. Great. Well, thank you all very much. Uh, Nicola, Olga, thank you for having us. Hope you all enjoy the rest of the shipping week, and, and thank you to our panelists for a wonderful discussion.